You're listening to Horse Racing Heroes, Episode 8, Lawrence. Ed Chamberlain there of ITV Racing, introducing the show. <laughs> Whatever. Welcome along to Episode 8 of Horse Racing Heroes, the racing podcast with no betting tips, no current affairs chat, but with every episode simply being about one great horse or person in racing. And this episode is about Lawrence, the filly who won no less than six Group 1s between 2017 and 2019. She was trained by Carl Burke and owned by John Dance. John is a busy man, CEO of the company Vertem, who you'll be familiar with from some of their big race sponsorships, but he kindly found time to join me for a Zoom call to chat through what it was like going from owning a few relatively moderate horses to having an absolute superstar like Lauren's. And I think it's a great listen. But quickly, just before we get to that, I just want to say a massive thanks for all the nice messages, reviews and tweets of the previous episode of Brendan Duke. Um, I was delighted to see that other people rated it as highly as I did. And um, I'm already trying to get another another chat with Brendan when I can. And an even bigger thanks to the people who joined the Patreon or supported the show by buying me a pint on the, the Kofi link. And if you would like to do that, the link is in the show notes and any support, as always, is hugely appreciated. But now, without further ado, please enjoy John Dance telling us all about Lawrence. So, John, first of all, um, I'm going to ask you to tell us how you got involved in a racehorse ownership and eventually came to own the great mare that was Lauren's. I think we, I think we had our first horses in 2014. We'd been sponsoring races prior to 2014, mainly at Newcastle. Uh, you know, we, we picked horse racing because I've always been into it. I'd never actually thought about ownership. I just enjoyed watching and analysing really as much as anything. Um, and there's only so many prize givings you can do before you quite fancy a piece of the thrill that, you know, you know, the regular owner, you know, the thrill of winning a race, regardless of what level, you know, it's quite infectious. So um, after a couple of years, I kind of said to Jess, fancy having a share in a horse. <laughs> um, uh, we went, went to a yard, we bought a whole horse and had agreed to go to the breeze up sales a few weeks later and sort of five weeks after i'd suggested to jess that we had a share in a horse we had six um <laughs> uh so that's kind of how it started it, it sort of spiraled from there and that first six were quite useful because you know even in that first year we learned such a lot a that you know for all the dreams and aspirations you might have when you buy into a horse whether it's a share or a full horse or whatever, you know, the vast majority of horses, you know, without being, you know, too frank, they're pretty hopeless. You know, 90% of them aren't even going to be rated over 80, you know. Um, and the, the, I think the average rating for a horse, I did some analysis last year, the average rating for a flat horse in training last year was about 67, 68, which, you know, Sounds like relatively poor quality, but that's actually average. And, you know, anything above that, you're doing quite well. Uh, we also learned, because we had two debut winners, we also learned that if you are lucky enough to get one that's 
you know, even half decent, you can get some pretty punchy offers from other owners in the UK or internationally. We had, we had two offers from the US and the biggest one we kind of turned down, but it would have paid for the whole six plus their training fees. So that's where the idea to go into it pretty aggressively numbers wise came from. For the next two years, we ended up with, you know, maybe two dozen a year in training, lots of new horses. We weren't necessarily investing a lot of money per horse, but enough to give us a chance of finding the nice one where a sort of punchy offer would cover the cost of the others. Um, and, it, and that was that was a semi-commercial kind of way of doing things. You know, you kind of, but the problem was you were losing the dream because it meant you never had a good horse because whenever you had a good horse, you were selling it to cover the cost of the bad ones and all you were ever left with were the bad ones. So, so we kind of tweaked it a little bit and thought, well, we'll throw a little bit more money at it a, increase numbers, B, buy better stock. It gives us a chance of having more good ones because, you know, we, we wanted to have the good horses, you know, we wanted to try and achieve something and take on the big boys of the game. So Lawrence, Lawrence we bought in, I guess it would be 2016, because she's five now, as a yearling. And um, we went through the Doncaster yearling sales catalogue and... Prior to going down to the sales, I'll usually flip through the catalogue, look for um, interesting pedigrees, sires that interest me. You know, just identify ones that I want to look at regardless of whether the agents have got them on their lists or not. The, the thing with Lawrence, it was kind of double, double pronged. The thing that I haven't mentioned that often is I saw the sire, Sayuni, who for all he's a kind of global superstar now, wasn't that well known over here. I had actually been following him as a sire and thought he was really interesting. So I was like, oh, Sayuni, that's, you know, I like them. Um, and he might be, you know, as, as a sire, he's possibly off the radar at Doncaster. With hindsight, I'm sure agents would have known exactly as much of, of Sayuni as I did, but they might not have found it as easy to sell the offspring of a less well-known stallion. So it was already of interest, but then being a French bred, um, they're often named very young um, before they were ever sold. And, and she was already named Lawrence. And my youngest daughter is, is called Lauren. And the previous year, or even that season in training, we had a horse named after my other daughter, Ashley. It was absolutely useless, by the way. So um, <laughs> poor Ashley got the, the rough end of the stick on that one, unfortunately. But um, but yeah, so I kind of, I saw the name as well. And I just thought, you know, we have to at least look at this horse. Uh, Dan Crichton, who uh, is one of the advisors we work with, he messaged me a couple of hours later, having just arrived at Doncaster and done a few first looks. And he said, I've seen the nicest horse that I've ever seen at Doncaster before in this area. He said, I can't believe how nice she is. If I asked what lot number, he says, um, lot 376. I'm like, oh, right, okay. And I flick through the book. Lo and behold, it's this same Sayuni named Lawrence. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. I've just circled her earlier on today based on, on you know, her, her name and, you know, who she's sired by. Um, next day, we turn up and um, we start looking through the lots. And actually, Jess and I both can't wait to get to see this horse. I don't know why. It can't be just the name anyway. But anyway, when we eventually saw her um, get pulled out of a box, I mean, it was unreal. She just walked out like this queen, you know, just the presence and class to her was 
like nothing I'd ever seen before. And then when you saw her physically, you know, even, even as a yearling, she was very, very, very special. I'm sure plenty of the uh, experts will, you know, tell you that there's no way Jess and I can possibly have a trained eye. And it may be that, you know, because of our untrained eye, she looked more perfect to us than she did to, you know, long in the tooth, experienced, knowledgeable people. But to us, you know, that the pair of us were exactly the same. I've never seen a horse like her before. And she's kind of ruined sales because I've never seen a horse like her since. It's very hard to kind of fall in love with a physical because we've kind of seen Lawrence and and there has never been anything like her. So she was stunning. She was exactly what Dan had said. You know, certainly, you know, in my opinion and for my eye, she was easily the most beautiful horse that had ever been through the Doncaster sales ring, certainly as a year. That particular year, you know, I knew in my head how many horses I wanted to buy and roughly how much I wanted to spend on average and therefore in total. You know, I had slightly different budgets per horse, um, you know, depending on how nice they were and what their pedigrees were. And every time a horse we managed to buy under budget, that little, that little different went straight on the Lawrence budget. She didn't have a like particularly exciting pedigree, but she was by a very good sire and her dam is a sister to a horse called Salford Mill, who won the Hong Kong Derby uh, or Hong Kong Mile. Um, sister to a group one horse. So it was, it was, the signs were in there of, you know, good flat blood without it being necessarily obvious. But I, I, I could, you know, just from how beautiful she was, I could sense that she wasn't going to be cheap. And there was there was quite a lot of talk about her. There was a buzz around the, the paddocks and subsequently the sales ring about how beautiful this horse had uh, come over from France was for this first time consigner and what have you. Anyway, um, so we were bidding on this horse and it kind of got to high 100s, which was at the time way more than we'd ever spent on a horse and it did get up to my budget but i you know just wanted her so much so dan and i kept bidding jess was going bonkers she was like, stop it stop it you you idiots I, you know i don't want to use the swear words she was using but there were plenty of them you fucking idiot stop it oh, you know she was going mad it got up to 210 it was our bid at this point jess was on the verge of self-combusting she was so furious um, <laughs> never seen her so angry. They, you know, the, the auctioneer who's he was going, um, any more offers, any more offers, we just refused to put the hammer down. It went on for ages. Jess is going bonkers. I'm starting to get sort of buyer's remorse, and I haven't even bought the horse yet. I'm thinking, oh my god, where's the upside from this? I want to be selling horses for 210 grand, not buying them for 210 grand. Oh my god, what have I done? The hammer never came down. I'm like, please, you know, someone bid, someone bid, someone bid. And it, we'd been going up in lots of 10. And we'd wait and wait and wait. Um, we'd been bidding against Angus Gold from Shadwell. And then he eventually sort of put his hand up and said five. And so the auctioneer accepted 215. And I was like, oh, thank God for that. You know, my wife's not going to kill me. I don't have to feel dreadful. I've completely overspent on a horse. Um, you know, and they're like the sense of buyer's relief, just I oh, was massive. Jess, like, you know, flipped completely changed and she went, five grand, five grand, all that fucking waiting around for five grand. Go again, go again. Um, <laughs> which was like, oh no, what do we do now? Um, so we went, uh, we went one more, 
uh, and we said five as well. And and we bought the horse. Um, you know, finally the the hammer came down. So you know, Dan had walked away. I turned my back. We'd given up on it, and it was it was Jess that sort of have, having like you know abused us for the last ten minutes. Um, you know, just did a full one eighty and forced us to make one more bid. So, of course, she claims singular responsibility for for buying lines having stressed so much about spending so much and thinking there's no upside, you know, actually there was more upside both relative and in absolute pounds and pence than any other horse we'd ever bought. So thankfully it did pay off, you know, she made about 1.8 million in prize money, probably another 300 grand in French premiums on top of that prize money. And, you know, she's probably worth four or 5 million or more. Absolutely fantastic and fair play to Jess for such a shrewd purchase in the end. Well, she, did, she, she didn't let any of us forget it, put it that way. <laughs> okay, so after all that, I imagine you're quite anxiously uh, awaiting the reports of how she's working at home and what kind of, what kind of, what she's like as a, as a horse, what's her personality like? Now that first impression when she came out of her box at Doncaster to, to be shown, um, it, it couldn't have been more reflective of her personality and her character and what she was like. She knew she was special somehow. And she, you know, she just had this air of, you know, it was a combination of grace, importance and superiority. You know, she knew who she was long before we knew who she was, put it that way. It came with a certain grace as well. You know, it wasn't cocky kind of, look who I am. It was a very you know, sort of nonchalant importance. Um, she was always a, you know, very classy, very classy filly, um, even before she'd been broken in, you know. There's a, there's a little detail to the long story that not a lot of people hear. Obviously, she'd come over from France, you know, big, long journey for a yearling, have, particularly having done weeks and weeks and weeks of sales prep. You know, there was probably not a buyer in that complex that hadn't had her out for a look and you know she she would have walked up and down those paddocks for three days straight you know a lot of horses get in the sales wing particularly the ones that are very nice and very popular they're bloody knackered by the time they get in the sales wing and they look at and you know we should have known she had a hell of an engine because it looked like she hadn't moved for weeks just been groomed immaculately and and popped out for a little show but we were conscious of the fact she'd probably had quite a hard time um, we wanted to give her some nice time out and some fields and a proper break, um, but we kind of wanted her close with it being such a valuable investment. So she actually went to Becky Menzies' new, at the time, new yard, uh, new farm, Howe Hills in Sedgefield, which is sort of 40 minutes down the road from us. She probably spent her first six or seven weeks of her life um, at Becky's, just so, you know, and, and absolute credit to Becky that, um, you know, she did that. She knew, well, I, I think she knew she wasn't going to get this 200 grand horse. Um, uh, and she knew she was going to Carl, but she still, you know, her and her team did a great job looking after her and, you know, let her have a bit of rest before going back to Carl's and, and starting her breaking in and, and sort of yearling prep process. So um, that's sort of a little nugget that not a lot of people have, have sort of dug out before. But that, you know, so we, we always think that Becky and her team at the time were you know, pivotal and vital part of, of Lauren's development. Absolutely, in those formative years. So before we get to her racing career, I just want a quick word on um, how PJ McDonald became your retained rider. 
Yeah, um, we first met PJ when he was working at Anne Duffield's yard. He was their stable jock. Just sort of, we made an instant connection, both as friends and individuals, but then also in terms of, you know, in, in horse and racing ways as well. Um, we, we are literally best mates. Our wives are best mates. We've been on holidays together, you know, so it's a, a genuine, you know, proper friendship there. He's, he's godfather to Harvey, our, our son. You know, we all get on like a house on fire, but, you know, PJ and I have always had very similar thoughts. So we started working with him at Anne's and, and that's where we started to grow a sort of racing connection. Then we started sponsoring him um, as a company. And, you know, with us having horses in different yards, it kind of seemed a bit silly, us spending all this money sponsoring a jockey and then for him to be sat in the weighing room whilst somebody else rode our horses. So we started asking if our sponsored jockey could ride at different yards. And, and, you know, the trainers we work with were pretty good about it, to be fair. And then um, when PJ left Anne's, and we expanded. He was um, he was riding a lot that winter for Mark Johnson, and um, you know we sat down with him early in the year and said, "Look, this looks like a great opportunity. You know, if you want to prioritise Mark, then we're cool with that because you know as friends we want we wanted him to go off and be kind of the big name jockey that he kind of is now. And you know, having been part of that, that would have been great. But um, you know, if you want to do that, we'll work around you. Um, and he said, "No, no, you know, look." Uh, you know, I, I want to ride for you guys. I get the biggest thrill winning for you guys and, and what have you. So I, I want to put you guys first. A few months into that particular year, which I guess, I think it was the year that Lawrence came on the scene. None of us knew that Lawrence was going to be as good as Lawrence was, to be fair. Unless he secretly did and went, well, I want to make sure I'm retained for this fight. <laughs> um, but she certainly wouldn't have done the lot at this point. But um you know, PJ was going into yards and riding our horses out every morning. Um, and it kind of meant he was, um, you know, missing out on outside rides and not riding out for some of his other trainer contacts and not necessarily always getting the rides that he would before. So we kind of mutually agreed that we'll pay him a retainer to kind of compensate him for those loss of rides and, you know, everything he'd be missing out by virtue of what had previously just been a sort of diligent dedication to us sort of thing. Um, and particularly as a friend we trust him and you know you know he, he's the one that'll come back from riding out and say this one's fucking useless John get it I, I know it hasn't run yet but I'll get it in a sale because when it has run you're going to be disappointed you know whereas historically we found lots of people would go oh yeah it's very nice you know and then then when it gets to the track you go fuck me that was useless um, I've missed the deadline for the next sale now, you know, so yeah, he's been, he's been a key ally and a key partner in what we've done so far. And, you know, we, we couldn't have done it without him. That's for sure. Yeah, that's fantastic. So your, your good friend and now retained writer PJ gets on the back of Lauren's in public for the first time for her, uh, her debut in July, 2017 over seven furlongs at Doncaster. And she's only fourth in the betting, but she gets up by a neck. And what can you tell me about that day? I mean, at that point we knew we had a pretty decent horse. There was a, you know, a Godolphin hot pot in there. Um, I think Richard Hannon had a horse that had run to a pretty decent standard on debut. And I know Richard Farhi's team really liked their horse, Exhort, that eventually came second. And, you know, it's turned out to be a multiple listed winner, I think. I think the night before, we were probably about 16 to 1. And we ended up fairly aggressively backed for, for what was a big field. And I think we went off like 
four or five to one, something like that. She'd been she'd been well backed throughout the day and the night before. But Carl's horses, particularly his Deccan tongues, will typically improve for their first run. They're pretty fit and they're pretty clued up, but you know, there's always that little bit left, and generally that allows horses to progress better uh, in the future if you, you know, if they're not wound up fully for their first run. Um, and it was looking like a pretty hot race. So Carl said, well, if she, if she wins this first time out, she's very good. I guess I hope that, fingers crossed, one day she might be a listed winner. You know, that would be the dream. At that point, we hadn't had a listed winner. We'd have a listed second, but... Um, that was the dream was to have a, a listed winning filly. So I was kind of hopeful that she would be good enough to be slap bang in there with these good fillies on debut. You know, she she looked green in front in the end and won by, you know, half to three quarters of a length, something like that, against what was a good filly. I mean, she looked like she could have won it by five or six lengths at one point and looked like she was kind of green in front. Obviously, what we now all know throughout a racing career is once once she's you know once she stops hearing the hooves of horses around her, she switches off, raises her arms in the air, and goes right. That's my that's my work done. And many horses found it very hard to get past her, um, but she wouldn't have given them a bloody chance to catch her up again. It was a decent race for a novice, and she was just cantering all over the entire field. And obviously, we were delighted to get this you know, debut winner, and I was thinking, oh, Carl said if she wins this, she really is a good horse, and it's quite excited. And the first thing PJ said was, she needs a group race because they couldn't go fast enough for her. And I was like, ah! you know, so that was, you know, that was a massive thrill. And instantly, Carl trots out this Pre de Calvados, a group three, it's now a group two, but Pre de Calvados in Dover over seven furlongs in three weeks' time. And I just thought, you knew how good she was, Carl, because you already know what group race she's going in next. I, th- I think that bit was ex- as exciting as anything, was that, that Carl had already worked out what group race to go for next before she'd even hit the track. So, um, you know, this this was all outside the way minutes after the race. So, yeah, that was pretty exciting. Yeah, and you went through with that plan then. She goes over to Deauville um, for that group three. And she's beaten only by Polydream, who would go on to be a Group One winner himself. So, how did she take that traveling, traveling back to her native France, of course? But uh, you know, for a young two-year-old traveling on just their second run, it's it's a big enough ask. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we you know we've kind of done the same this year with Riven Master, you know, asked massive questions on just the second start. You know, having sat down and we discussed everything I just sort of mentioned, we we were all pretty keen to go and find something where you know they'd probably go a decent gallop, and um, you know, Group Three was you know probably where she'd get that. I, I don't know what was wrong with us all because, of course, it was a French Group Three, which meant they went absolutely pedestrian for the vast majority of it, and then it turned into a real last two furlong hammer down full throttle sprint which obviously massively suited Polydream. And she was she was green, you know, just as they were all really quickening. And, um, you know, she would have got away with it versus the remainder of the field. But, you know, Polydream was a very, very good two-year-old who, as you say, went on to win Group 1s over seven and a mile, I think. But that said, we've just come second in a Group 3. What the hell? It was amazing. Um Seems silly with what she went on to achieve, but at the time, that's you know that's the stuff that dreams are made of. Small, non-Godolphin, non-Cornwall, non-Qatar, non-Judmont 
type owners like us, this is this is fairyland um, territory. So um, amazing thrill. And, you know, we went over to France the day before. We went with PJ and Abby. We all shared a hotel, went out for dinner. It was it was an amazing experience. Fantastic. Yeah. And from from second in a group three to winning a group two next at, at Doncaster, the the May Hill over a mile. And it's it's interesting watching it back because two furlongs out, I reckon you'd have you'd have been pretty happy to get third. But she's so tough and really gets her head down and battles to win. Yeah, yeah. Again, um, that was pretty special, obviously. Um, we were driving down to Doncaster, Jess and myself. So PJ, PJ rang us on his on his way down. We were in the car and he, and he said, um, what does it feel like to have the favourite in a group two? And I just thought, our racing life is not going to get better. Never mind what happens later. I can't see it getting better or feeling like we've accomplished more than having the favourite in a, in a group two. Um, obviously, we're not going to win it. That would be mental. You know, you, you could have like literally stopped our racing career then and I would have been happy and felt we'd achieved more than we'd ever, you know, just by virtue of having the favourite. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was pretty cool in itself. You know, it was, pretty, it was pretty tense. The nerves were starting to build up. You know, I had people from all sorts. I met Nick Luck. Uh, in the owner's box, who was with Kevin Buckley of Coolmore. First time I met him, what a nice bloke I was thinking. You know, thankfully I haven't changed my opinion. He's, he is a really nice bloke. Suddenly, people I, you know, I, I knew of, I didn't know them, they were, they were famous. Um, you know, and we had these famous people within racing community coming up and wishing us luck and asking us quite, and I'm like, oh my God. Uh, and then obviously the race itself, like you say, a couple of furlongs out, you would have been you know, chuffed um, to have grabbed a place and looked slightly different, but not dissimilar to the French race. You know, Nyleti hit the front and obviously there were maybe some stamina doubts over Nyleti at that time. So I think James was then trying to conserve as much energy on the front with Nyleti as he could. And they were all sort of grouping around the wings behind her and we were stuck in the middle. And I was like, Oh, we need to go faster. We need, you know, we need more pace. We need more pace. I wasn't worried about being boxed in as such because there weren't masses of horses in the field. I knew that, you know, a gap would come at some point. But it was more. This is going to turn into a sprint again. You know, we want to really. I know it's. I know it's the extended trip of a mile, but you know, we want a nice, strong pace. You know, because that two runs so far and both times, PJ said they weren't going quick enough for us. You know. Um, so I, I kind of thought we were done and dusted after about three furlongs because I thought they're going so slow, it's not going to suit us again. As you say, a couple of furlongs out, she kind of had to force her way out a little bit. But yeah, just, you know, that, that race more than even the races before or anything behind just seemed to take a while for her to click into, into action. You know, maybe they were going that slow. She didn't really realise it was a race. And, it, you know, she'd kind of gone to sleep a little bit. Uh, but then she just eventually got rolling. And, you know, when that big engine kicked in, um, yeah, it was, it was you know, it's pretty special. You've got a group two in the bag. There's only one, one, uh, one place to go from there, which is the group one. So she goes to the Phillies mile. This is the first day she, she makes the running. Was that an intentional plan or was it just make sure it was a good pace? Yeah, it was a little bit. And credit to PJ on that. I mean, um Obviously, the May Hill had gone, you know, had gone well, and there was a, you know, there was a bit of soft in the ground. 
Um, so, you know, it was a bit of a stamina test in, in that respect, although, as I say, it had been, um, you know, run pretty steady to start off with. And PJ and I were pretty convinced that at Group 1 level, particularly at Newmarket, you know, they tend to just crack on with things pretty quickly at Newmarket. We thought that was going to be, you know, a pretty hard race. And, you know, at that point, PJ still felt she might be a bit weak. And, you know, um, having a crack at a Group 1 over a mile that was going to be pretty strongly run at Newmarket might be a bit of a big ask for her. So it was, it was a real sort of last-minute decision on whether we should go or not. Um, there were definitely question marks for me. When Carl supplemented, or Carl and his connection supplemented the other horse from the yard, I kind of thought, oh, God, I'm not convinced we should be running. Can you imagine if we run and we got beat by, um, you know, his, his other horse? I mean, that would, that would be like the final kick in the teeth sort of thing, you know? Uh, Elthea, that was it. I was like, I'm not sure. And that, that was almost swung me to, nah, nah, that's it, I'm not going, I'm not going, you know. Um, why are they putting Althea in? They must know something I don't know. You know, I can't really. I think in the end, PJ said, "Look, you never know what's going to happen over the winter. Maybe we should just, you know, give it a, a whirl." And um, you know, if it's not working out from that, I'm not going to bottom her to come sixth. You know, so I'll make sure we still got a horse for next year. Right, okay. We, we'd always thought that she wanted some soft in the ground. The way she sort of had this swinging pendulum action that, you know, she'd want softer ground. Saeed often went well in soft ground, particularly, you know, he's by Pivotal and, you know, so that sort of trade looked like it had continued. And um, when we saw the ground there, I mean, it was, it was like concrete. Um, so we were, you know, a little bit, a little bit worried about the ground. And we were drawn against the rail and PJ said, look, for us to have a chance, I, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be quick and they're going to finish quick. I think we need to turn it into a stamina test for the other horses. So from the minute he walked the course in his head, he was going to make the running on it. So instead of looking for a race where the horses in front would go quick enough to carry us, he decided that in that ground, he was going to flip it. And he, and he kind of said, right, you try and stay with us. You know, and I think in, in a lot of cases, he kind of, you know, he, he burnt the rivals out. See, September came with a flashing late run. And again, I think that's half because once once she had broken the resolve of those nearest to her, the old, uh, oh, done, where are you? Oh my God, there's one here. And, you know, kind of just gets going again. But um, yeah, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty mad that was. So yeah, it was always the plan to do that. Excellent. And like you said, September comes late. Uh, it goes to a photo finish and it, it, it's very tight. It's not, it's not one of those photo finishes where you know for sure you've won. Oh, God. No. How, how's, the, how's the heart rate? Uh, I mean, I can, I, I, you know, people say oh, I, could, I could feel my heart pumping out of my chest. I swear to God, I could see my jacket pocket <laughs> bulging and contracting, bulging and contracting. I was like, what is going on here? Um, it was, I mean, you know, Obviously, it was PJ's first group one. His wife was in tears. She was hugging Jess and I going, oh, you don't know what this means to us. It's, um, and I'm thinking, I don't think we've won this. I said, yeah, just calm down, Abby. You know, they've not, they've not um, called the result yet. Um, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's going to be heartbroken if this doesn't go our way. <laughs> and I did think there was quite a big chance that it might not go our way. And, and it, oh, my God, that was like the longest wait for photos or whatever at least it felt like it 
And obviously, you know, when the result came through, the sort of relief and euphoria was incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, it's just, you know, a, a group one, what on earth is going on? Going back to when we first bought horses and you have these dreams of winning classics and group ones and what have you, you, you dream about it, but deep down, you know it's not really likely to happen. So for it to have actually happened, it was just it was crazy, so surreal and absolutely, absolutely amazing day. It was just incredible. Fantastic. And then given the, the commercial kind of background you, you told us about earlier, is it in your, does it cross your mind at this point? Wow, like she's instantly, over those couple of minutes, she's become a hugely valuable horse. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we'd had some pretty hefty offers before that race. And we had a lot of heavy, very hefty offers over the winter. Um, you know, how, how how hefty? What are we talking? Give us some figures. It's well into the millions. Wow, wow, um, yeah. insane money. You know, um, and how difficult is it, is it to turn them down? Uh, it's really easy to turn them down initially, and as soon as you've said no, not a chance. You kind of go, crikey, what have I done? You know, is that stupid? Have I have I been a bit mad there? You know, is that stupid turning that down? Is she ever going to be worth that? Am I ever going to be able to convert it into the same monetary sum one way or another? You know, there was a lot of what are the chances of us having another horse like her again, a group one winner again, you know, not and not just from future breeding, you know, we've got the chance now to breed from a group one winner that other than the big boys, very few people will. But just, you know, from the racing aspect as well, you know, what's next? Target guineas. Target after that, um, prep race for the the French Oaks, the pre diat how, how many more times are we going to have a horse that puts us in that situation? It's chances are it's going to be right, what's the next target? Not to eighty at Newcastle, and after that, not to eighty-five at Catrick. You know, and there's nothing wrong with those races, nothing wrong with those race courses, but that's a very different perspective to which classic shall we go for next, and which classic after that, and which Group One shall we use as a prep run. I mean, that's just you know bonkers stuff. So yeah, so it was it was kind of easy to turn it down, but you did. It did feel weird after each time you did it, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, well, thankfully, over the course of time, it would prove to be the right decision. So her winter then, where does she, where does she go for her winter between two and three? Uh, in, uh, that, actually, every winter, she did end up staying at Carl's. They built a little paddock for her to get turned out um, whenever the weather was nice enough. Just meant that we could keep a closer eye on her weight and stuff like that and you know, do a little bit with her if we needed, just so as to give ourselves as, as much opportunity as possible to have her, you know, ready to to kick off a three-year-old campaign in the guineas. You know, problem with being a group one winner at back end of your two-year-old career is, you know, there aren't really any prep runs for the guineas unless you want to lug around a stone more than the vast majority of, of your rivals. And you run the risk when getting them ready so early in the season and carrying that kind of weight. You, you bottom them before your season's even started. And whilst we wanted to crack at the Guineas, you know, our, our longer term objective was was the pre-Diane. So, um, you know, obviously we're just trying to make sure we minded her properly over the winter for that for that reason. Fantastic. So she does go straight to the Guineas. Um, a quote from Carl beforehand said he felt she'd gone under the radar a little bit. Uh, and he said, if she can keep up that momentous gallop, it'll be a good horse that gets by her. And in the end, only one horse got by her. Uh, talk me through you, uh, your feeling as you're, watch, as you're watching that race. Because there is, an, again, there's a moment, a couple of furlongs out where you must have thought, I'm going to win a guineas here. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Yeah, I, I don't know if there was ever a point where my brain told me that might be about to happen. I mean, that the whole Guinea's experience was unreal, by the way. Just the overwhelming support from so many people far and wide on social media or, you know, on their phone that just given us their support and stuff. The, the event, the media profile, the interest, the global interest in it. You know, so we watch it on the TV and you don't realise how much of a big thing the whole weekend is from a global perspective you know and it was pj says the same it was, it, it was amazing to be part of that but i hadn't really been that nervous for most of the day and i don't know if part of it was you know we've already we've won a group one so she doesn't need to so you know anything she does now is just a bonus and takes a bit of the nerves away up until the point they start going in the stalls and the old jacket pocket starts popping out again um oh my God, I could feel it. I genuinely thought I was going to have a heart attack. But um, yeah, I mean, the race, the way the race went, we were prominent, but not necessarily on the front. Again, it was just incredibly quick ground. You know, even though she's three now, she's she's still, she's chopping and changing her legs every couple of strides. And that may partly be PJ trying to restrain her and stopping her fully extending and expending too much energy too early. But we did think it was partly the ground and a reluctance to hit it too frequently and stuff. Yeah, it's a tricky one because you've just come second in a guineas and that is beyond your wildest dream by so many times. It's unbelievable. Uh, and you think we've beaten everything that we and the market said we'd have to beat. And it's a bloody... We've been beaten by 66 to one shot. It's just... Ah, so close and yet so far. So then your your next choice then was either the Irish Guineas or the prep race for the Prix de Diane over France, and you end up going for France. Yeah. Carl had forgotten we were in that French race. We, we had to enter it months ago. <laughs> and we were having a debate about... We, we wanted some form of stepping stone between the Guineas and the Prix de Diane. You know, we were obviously conscious of the way she acted on the fast ground at Newmarket. And we were looking at, you know, how the ground was developing. And it looked like in Ireland, the ground was also going to be pretty quick. And I, and I said to Carl, was always that French race. And he went, what French race? <laughs> and I reminded him. And then, yeah, the way the, way the ground was, I mean, ironically, when we got to Longchamp, it was rattling quick again. But we, we went went to France, A, to sort of test ourselves over the extra trip with the pre-Diane in mind. And, and because we thought the ground um, was going to be a bit more forgiving there, albeit that didn't necessarily turn out to be the case. Okay. And then she, she's odds on for a group one. Does, does that bring a certain amount of pressure for you? I, I'd say that that brought more pressure pre-race or the sense of pressure than any of our other races Horses should be odds on in group ones. That's bonkers, isn't it? Um, and but I, but I really felt this sort of pro- well, she has to win now, and she, everyone's going to go bloody hell. You know, blah, blah, blah. just looks horrific, doesn't it? When uh, an odds on favourite in such a race gets turned over, so um, because that that odds on infers a very hefty reputation. It's almost like the the pressure is about what well, we have to win to maintain a reputation now, don't we? You know, uh, we obviously we nearly blew it. You know, P- PJ wanted to drop her in behind just to make sure she got the trip. And this time she, you know, she did genuinely relax. And PJ said she actually, I probably let her over relax. And if we'd got beat, it would have been my fault. Because, you know, once once the race started taking off, I couldn't wake her up again. She just, her, her will to win 
and, and mental strength and what, you know, what a battler she was. I mean, that was, you know, that was a great performance, really. She's now a dual Group 1 winner and um, she needs all those qualities for her next race, which is the big target, the pre-Diane, uh, the French Oaks. Looking at the early stages of that, it goes very, very wrong. <clears throat> I mean, we didn't, we, had a, we didn't have a great draw. I mean, ideally we would have been, I think PJ felt that she clearly stays the trip so I can afford to do a bit of a Phillies mile on her, dictate the pace, wind it up, wind her up, up travel them in the ground, jobs are good. And um, then we got drawn, you know, out in the car park somewhere. That was going to make life pretty tricky. And when the stalls opened, I, I can't remember what Frankie was on, but my God, he made sure it got to the front. And he, you know, took off like a scolded rat. And once he'd secured the inside rail on the front, slammed on the anchors, and we were sort of trapped two or three wide going around all those bends. You know, she's keen as mustard at this point because PJ saying, you know, I'm not going to let you switch off because I might not switch you on. She's got daylight in front of her. And she, she just wants to gallop. So she's three wide, pretty keen. I mean, yeah, it, it just looked like everything had gone wrong. But coming into the straight, the speed she showed coming into the straight, got her head in front. And then at some point during that last two furlongs, every horse in the field must have had a go at her. You know? And so she's like, oh, you know, battling one off. You know, she wasn't elbowing horses, but, you know, in racing terms, she, you know, she's belling one back. Then another one comes, you know, she must have had about six battles up that home straight. She, you know, like I say, she metaphorically elbowed them all back in the face. And um, just in a, it was an amazing weekend. It was an amazing moment of a truly amazing weekend. So many great memories. And they treat us like royalty. And they treat us like royalty just by having a horse in that race. But they treat us like royalty after. It's a massive thing in France. You know, we, we all see the Arc de Triomphe as, as being their big race and it is their most valuable race but it's an international race the race day and the race of the year for the French is the pre de it's, it's massive for them domestically you know we had a funny day like, obviously Jess was a month away from giving birth couldn't really fly we were sort of struggling how we were going to logistically get there and make sure I could come back at short notice and this that and the other so, um, it's gonna, this is going to sound like say cocky and what have you but I didn't mean it but um, she'd, she'd obviously won a load of prize money last time so I thought well bugger it I'll use some of that prize money we'll hire a private jet so um, it wasn't a jet in the end it was a twin prop private plane it was a you know good size it was you know sat eight in saloon style luxury it was quite nice but um, anyway, we, we got this plane so and that's why I'm going with my father-in-law Jess's dad is you know, similar working class background to me. So, you know, he picks me up and we drive to the airport and we're in this private waiting room and you know, pri- private departure lounge. And, uh, PJ and Abby turn up um, and a couple of the Burks and we all, you know, get in this posh private plane and fly down and, and just the look on Jess's dad all the way there, it's just like, I don't know what's going on here. This is mad dislike. Um, and, you know, he's beaming ear to ear his eyes are like twice the size of normal you know just looked in complete bewilderment at how mad it was and then we got there we got to Chantilly got to the race course and then um, uh, the owners of the horses in the pre-diam were in um, in inverted commas the Longines enclosure Longines were obviously the sponsors but we had to queue to get in there where the queue went you had to sort of well they were stopping people and taking photos and this that and the other one I was like crikey they're making a big deal of this 
but it was kind of like the entrance to, you know, the GQ awards or the Oscars or something. And they're all getting, you know, packed with the sponsored stuff behind and this and the other. So that was all a bit surreal. And then when we got in there, it was it was just like um, the greater good of, of France are in there, you know, famous models, actors, actresses, you know, global superstars, Japanese models. I mean, it was, it was Hollywood superstars in there. We, we didn't realise that's what we we're going into. And that's why they were doing all the pap photos on the way in. So I'm pretty sure the photographers were like, well, I don't know who these four think they are but I'll just take a picture and then stick them in the bin because, you know, we, we didn't realise all the people in front of us were these sort of international media stars. But when the penny dropped, Jess's dad had me in stitches because, like I say, you know, we've both come from these working class backgrounds and this is probably the first time that we've been able to get him to these big, big events. I mean, he came to the Guineas with us and things like that, but, but this was just different kind of level and we'd gone on the plane and he just turns around to me and goes, E, John, you different off get us in some funny situations, lad. <laughs> and and it's just, it was, I don't know, it's just something about it, just that'll stick in the head forever. Because it was just, you could tell, you know, Tally was just like, this is like being in a different universe. What is going on? Um, and then when we were leaving, you know, the security guards kind of rushed over and uh, escorted us out to make sure, you know, like that was kind of what I was saying about they just treat us like superstars from, from then onwards. Oh, congratulations, you win our special race. And, you know, that's the security guard. Even he was uh, conscious of, of how much the day meant and stuff. It was um, an absolutely bonkers experience. I have a quote from you here, um, which says, when we bought this filly, this was the race we talked about. Literally the day we bought her. So to actually come here and win it is incredible. Now, John, I feel good about myself if, if I, on the rare occasion, I land a Cheltenham anti-post bet. But <laughs> to buy a horse, have a race in mind for a couple of years down the line, that's got to be one of the most satisfying things ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it has, it has kind of created this thing where whenever we buy a horse now, we just nominate randomly a race for it to win in the, in the hope that history might repeat itself. But, um, you know, everything about that horse just feels like fate and we were, you know we were just in the sort of hospitality tent at Doncaster after we bought her and you know you know she qualified for French breeders premiums and and Carl had pointed out and said oh crikey that you know that'd be worth a fair bit if you win a good race in France and I said we're going to win the French Oaks telling you now you know like I say just, just everything about that horse is uh, otherworldly in terms of everything falling into pieces from a sort of fate perspective and yeah to, to go back and win it was um, was pretty unreal I mean I've you know nominated um Royal Ascot races and and guineas and everything for every horse we've bought since and it's never worked since but um well the, the big plan came to fruition and then it was from the French Oaks to the Yorkshire Oaks and this was her first time over a mile and a half was that a bit of an arc trial for you to a certain extent yeah yeah you know she she'd kind of stayed the mile and a quarter really well and you know she got stronger as her three-year-old year went on. So she kind of looked like she would be strong enough to go further than she had before. So we were conscious of the fact that we had this kind of conflict between Sayuni, who typically injects a lot of speed into his offspring. I think Sotsas is the first horse of his to have won over further than a mile and a quarter. And so we were conscious that Sayuni typically injects a lot of pace into his offspring but you know Lauren's mother was quite a distance horse and had thrown sort of distance horses and so there were signs for and against but you know we felt everything was kind of telling us that she would 
you know, visually in the way she'd been running that she would get a mile and a half. And so, yeah, we, we had fought, we won here, um, and then we'll make a prep for whatever going into the um, into the arc. And, and we did have proposed stepping stones to get there as well, post, post the Yorkshire Oaks. As it turned out, she was probably traveling the best two furlongs out, two and a half yards later, she was empty. You know, she literally stayed one mile two and literally not a yard further. You know, her, her and obviously Sia class was behind her, but traveling well as well. But she she tanked up through the first one mile and a furlong. And, and, you know, she was still traveling strongly at the two furlong pole. And like I say, within 10 yards, she was just empty. And, and PJ said she, she emptied just like that. So that kind of meant a massive revision. Um, for all, she just won these two group ones at a mile and two. And for all, she'd been beaten in the guineas. I still had it in my head that if we let her travel strongly, she would be a better miler than a mile and two horse. And that in the same way that Carl's horses improve for a run on debut, they typically improve for a run on, on reappearance. So I thought we could step up on that guineas form. In a, in, you know, if we gave a mile another shot and initially Carl was like, everyone's going to think we're mad going from a mile and four to a mile. And I said, no, no. I said, but look, you know, the three best fillies of, of this generation, Lawrence, Sea of Class, um, who, you know, we got beat by in an alpha century. And, and I, I think it's quite sporting to try and take them on and, you know, see how we get on. And I'm pretty confident we are better over a mile. So, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of time between that and the matron stakes in Ireland. But um, eventually, Carl went from being a bit lukewarm on it and thinking everyone's going to think we're bonkers to, you know, he was, you know, his eyes were lighting up at the prospect of, I think, Jay Foley, who's, um, heavily involved in an Irish Champions weekend was also, you know, trying to sell the dream to Carl of what it would be like there and what, you know, what the experience might be like if we won. I think um, Carl's eyes started lighting up and he's quite excited at that prospect. And then I think the more he started thinking about trying over a mile and obviously did another piece of work, a sharp bit of work with her at home, kind of thought, actually, this this really isn't that mad. But, uh, you know. yeah, so she goes over for the matron over a mile in uh, Leopardstown. Before we get to the race, um, I know PJ was out injured and couldn't ride, but you yourself weren't in uh, in full fitness either on that day. Yeah, no. Uh, in the in the fortnight preceding the race, it, it was a bit of a comical state of affairs. To be fair, I I was out walking the dogs, disappeared down a hole and broke my leg, um, only one leg, and uh, two, literally two days later. PJ, being the ultra-competitive person that he is, decided that he could break even more legs than I had. And he was he was thrown in the air in the parade ring at Newcastle um, and landed on his feet, but he'd come from such a uh, high high to shattered both his ankles. So there was a slight comical scene a fortnight later at Dublin Airport and throughout the grounds of uh, Leopardstown Racecourse where bloke with his leg in a um, moon boot with a broken leg, was pushing around a wheelchair with another guy in two moon boots. And hence, we have a we have a three-year-old now in training uh, via our racing club, Titanium, who's named Moon Boots. And obviously, that's, that's where the name came from. Um, I'm sure it looked absolutely insane, but um, yeah, fun times. <laughs> the race itself, uh, thankfully, went a little bit better for you. Yeah, no, it was... Um, and obviously, we had Danny on board, and we were very grateful that, that he took the ride. Yeah, we'd obviously spoke a lot to PJ um, in the build-up. He 
you know, one of the reasons we eventually plumped for Danny was, you know, he's fairly local, so he could go in, do a piece of work, get to know the filly. Uh, he gave her, he gave her a beautiful ride. Um, it was obviously, you know, an amazing, amazing achievement. Bit bittersweet at the time with, you know, with what happened to Alpha Centuri, and you know, there'd been a bit of pre-race niggle there. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think what happened to Alpha Centuri is possibly distracted from what a good performance it was. Um, I don't think. Um, she would have been beaten that day regardless. You can kind of see from her fractions that day, she injected some pace, three furlongs out. She then got a bit of a lead and uh, the second or two furlongs out, actually her time dipped um, as she, you know, again, steps off the gas and then she quickened again for the last furlong. So, you know, it's only when horses have started coming to her that that she's um, put it all in. So I think she had plenty up her sleeve that day and um, I, I, I don't think she would have beat, been beaten whatever the result. And, you know, to be be part of, of Irish Champions Weekend and, and everything that went with it was, you know, was a huge honour anyway. You know, to walk away with the spoils from one of the championship races was was incredibly special. And um, PJ came to support. It was just obviously incredibly hard for him, you know, watching her win another group one with somebody else on her back uh, and you know, probably pretty tough for him to take, but just shows what a team player he is. And it's weird. Um, there are a few pictures floating around. I haven't seen them for a little while, actually, but... You know, he's, he's in the corner of the winner's enclosure and, and she spots him. She knew exactly who he is and, uh, you know, nuzzles her head down into him gently and stuff. I mean, I saw the photo of that afterwards. I was in bits, you know, absolutely emotional wreck. Yeah, that sounds like a lovely moment. And I need to ask, as a Dublin native, did you go somewhere in Dublin City Centre for a couple of pints of Guinness afterward? Yeah, well, uh, well, that was actually a Champions Weekend dinner that night. So we did we did a few bars before that. Uh, I think we may have snuck in one or two afterwards as well. But again, not particularly easy when two of the main party uh, are in moon boots and wheelchairs. So um, yeah, when you've got one one fully operational leg between two of you, <laughs> that makes it <laughs> exactly fun. not the easiest. Yeah. But um, that was the fourth group one for the filly. And then it was on to Newmarket uh, for the Sun Chariot to try and make it five. Again, Danny Road. And again, I mean, I think she won by half a length or a head or something like that. I think that's one of her most devastating performances. And I, I, you know, she, she was, she's obviously one of those characters never going to win by half the track if she could. But I think that's that's the one race that she she could have named her distance and won by if she, if she wanted. Two furlongs out, they're all in a heap of trouble. Danny's got a double handful, loving life, you know. Hasn't really asked her to do too much. Dots a couple of lengths clear, slams on the anchors uh, and waits for something to catch her up and nearly gets mugged towards the line. But, you know, it was one of her highest rated performances on time form and racing post. I think it's also the one where she had probably the most left up her sleeve. Um, that was very impressive. And then it was on to Asuka for the QE2, where it look, it has that feel of maybe end of a long season for the way she runs. There were a few signs at Newmarket when she won the Group 1, and they may have even contributed to that performance being pretty good. Um, she was a bit buzzy and sweaty on the way down to the start. That's not normally her. And she was incredibly 
keen. You know, Danny said I was, you know, compared compared to Leopardstown, I was a passenger for the first two and a half furlongs, you know. She was in charge. And, you know, they're the kind of signs that Phillies in particular give, you know, when they're over the top. And I think that was probably her giving some signs that she was just about. But we got away with it that day. In between the two races, I think there was only two weeks or so, it was a bit of, it was a fairly quick turnaround. Um, so you were never going to do an awful lot of work with her in between. But at home, she was still pretty relaxed. So we were, maybe, maybe she wasn't over the top. All right, then, okay, we'll go for it. At this point, we convinced ourselves she is a better miler than she is over further. We supplemented for the QET, effectively £70,000 on a 10th one shot or something. You know, never gambled anything like that before. That way. Uh, but in terms of a prize money return, but, you know, she'd earned a chance there and she'd made plenty of money. So you couldn't begrudge supplementing for what we thought would be the right race. She travelled pretty well to start off with. You know, PJ did say, uh, PJ's back on board now, he said she travelled beautifully. When I just asked her to lengthen, you know, she pretty much instantly said back to me, I've had enough, mate. I am tired. And, um, you know, sort of minded and nursed her a little bit from there. And, you know, it's one of them silly things where afterwards you kind of feel awful. You know, you just think, wow. You feel very guilty that you've asked her to go that one more time. And, and it's maybe only because you went that one more time that you now know she was definitely telling you the previous time, this is this is your lot, mate, for this year. Um, so I felt a bit guilty about the fact we went there. So then you've got a bit of a decision to make. Uh, you've got a filly who's, who's now won five group ones. Talk to me about the decision to stay in training to give her another season. Because it's a brave enough one, I'd say. Um, yeah, yeah, arguably fairly brave. Um, you know, Ascot aside in, uh, on Champions Day, um, you know, Lawrence had, had pretty much made it clear how much she loves racing. So in the end, we just sort of sat down and thought, you know, if she could talk, what would she want? And I think she demonstrated over the previous two years, she absolutely loves running and she loves racing. You know, you can tell, you know, she's still, she, even at Ascot at the end of the year when she wasn't, you know, she came alive as soon as she hit the parade ring, you know, she's very relaxed at home. She's relaxed walking to the gallops when everything else is messing around and dicking about. You know, she's like, no, no, this is where we behave. We've got a job to do. And then when she kind of gets in the parade ring, you know, she, she comes alive and she, she loves it. And she loves galloping. She loves racing. So we kind of thought, well, I think she would want to keep running. You know, she doesn't need to win anything. So... You know, we'll just see how we go. And, um, and that's why we kept her in training. She had a, you know, a bit of a stop-start start to the year. You know, she missed the race course gallery at Haydock before going into the lock engine at Newbury. Probably one of the contributors to her coming up a little bit short on the day. She maybe missed bits and pieces before Ascot, but I think Ascot, it doesn't suit necessarily suit front runners. Typically and statistically doesn't suit front runners up the straight. Um, although she's still in a cracking race, but um, you know maybe didn't show her true colours. Then she had a sort of more meaningful injury before her next race. So we we obviously had penciled in the foul mistakes uh, at Newmarket, but um, she'd had this injury, and it's just you know we were starting to think, oh god, have we, have we done the right thing here? Not for ourselves, but just for her. Um, we just thought, you know, is it the right thing to keep going? We did wonder whether we should. She deserved to retire. The, the training performance and getting her ready for France to, for the pre de Rothschild, um, you know, was incredible because, you know, she wasn't cantering or galloping a few weeks before. And again, you know, she went over to France, back to Deauville, um, 
she was unbeaten in France, bar at Deauville. So um, that was, that was it. Was nice to kind of cross that one off the list and say, no, I can win at Deauville too. And another another great performance where you know she's got so much of the field in trouble so early. And that, I mean, this time she did genuinely bound about five lengths clear, but then stuck the anchors on even more aggressively than normal. It's like, what are you doing, girl? You know, but uh, she's, she won that one quite comfortably and it was, you know, it was a great performance. And six group ones and group ones at two, three and four, there really aren't a lot of horses that, that do that. Absolutely, yeah. And just a note then on her final, uh, after that group one, after her six group one, she, she gets chinned in the city of York. And then she's a little bit below form in the Matron and Sun Chariot. And then it's kind of decided to retire her. Yeah. I mean, may, maybe the city of York took the edge off her a little bit. You know, it was a group two, but she was gra- carrying a group one penalty. But she, and she, came, she only came second in a photo. But for me, that probably, you know, it's not, it wasn't necessarily the best experience and the most important win or anything like that, you know, because she got beat. For me, that is still her best performance that day. You know, the day she got beat in a lower grade than what she's normally winning, uh, for me, and the way I analyse stuff, that was her best performance because she was, you know, the winner, she was carrying a weight-for-age penalty versus him, plus a £7 penalty for having been a Group 1 winner. She's lugging best part of a stone more than a three-year-old filly would have done against a three-year-old cult. You know, she, she won an absolute barnstormer of a race. Uh, it was a thrilling race. It was great to be part of for all we got beat. Um, so it was a hell of a race. And the winner showed a hell of uh, an attitude to keep firing her off and firing her off. But for all we got beat, I, for me, that was just, you know, it was an incredible performance. And at that point, I mean, a combination of, you know, that race seemed to sort of bottom both horses in the end um, a little bit. So that took the edge off her a little bit. And, you know, she had had a little bit of a niggly, tricky year, which meant she'd kind of had to be trained a bit harder getting her ready for each, not York as such, but, you know, to get her ready in time for Newbury, maybe had to work a little bit harder to get ready. You know, having had a few niggles, more sort of, you know, non-strenuous, non-tough, you know, work going into Ascot. We then had to rush her to get ready for Ascot. We had to rush her to get ready for France. We then got a clear passage into York. But I think having, you know, I think it brought, uh, you know, brought her season to a close. That and, you know, combination of that and how much York probably took out of her just probably foreshortened her season that year. And, um, you know, she didn't run a bad race in the matron stakes. Um, she was fourth, but nothing like her, her normal self. You know, it was we, we weren't entirely sure whether we should go for the Sun Chariot as much as we wanted to defend it because we, you know, we're maybe a little bit worried, but we kind of felt, you know, we don't want to retrospectively nominate something as being her retirement race, if that makes sense. So, and again, you know, she'd not, she'd not screamed, but she'd had enough. So, so we had a go at the Sun Chariot, at which point she made it pretty bloody obvious that she'd had enough for the year. And it would, you know, would have been the last one anyway. Um, it would have been nice to go off on a fairy tale, but, you know, let's face it, she didn't she didn't need another group one. Not winning a group one and not necessarily running great, um, you know, should never detract from how great she was and, you know, what she'd achieved in, in the past. Absolutely. And then talk to me briefly about the decision to hold on to her. And then when you do hold on to her, how do you decide which sire to send her to? Yeah, um, well, you know, we, we held on to her. I don't think there was, you know, any change in the way we felt versus 
you know, the offers that we talked about earlier, you know, she was ours, she meant an awful lot to us and we were never really going to get, you know, are we likely to get a chance to breed from another Group 1 winner? Um, and if we want to take the big boys on in the future, giving them our best mares is not going to help us or strengthen our hand, is it? So it was probably, a, you know, it was a no-brainer keeping keeping hold of her. Uh, you know, we tossed and turned quite a bit about where to go. And, we, you know, we were thinking we'd maybe go to No, No, Never. We eventually went to Invincible Spirit. We picked Invincible Spirit because we kind of felt if we're ever going to use him, we probably want to get on with it because, you know, he's... he's, he's He's not getting any younger, uh, to put it politely as I can. You know, if we could breed our own Kingman, who was obviously by um, Invincible Spirit, then, um, you know, that would be a dream because he was, you know, he was a real favourite of mine. The reason we were kind of tossing up between the likes of Invincible Spirit, Kingman, No Name Never was, you know, referring back to some of the dynamics during the races that we talked about there. You know, she was a quick horse. She could, you know, she could really travel and she could get up to a high top end, but it was just the rate at which she'd go from speed A to speed B, just marginally lacking, you know, and it's hard to be too critical because she won six group ones, but we just felt if we could inject a bit of pace into her, that could really make a, a you know, devastating offspring. So we, we went for the Invincible Spirit route for, for that particular reason. We had the decision between No Nay Never and Kingman for this year. It might ordinarily have been tricky, but because of COVID, we've not been able to get down to see her all year and we've not seen her for an entire year. And so we're like, do we really want to send her and her foal off the island and you know not see her for even longer? So we're pretty keen to keep her over here. So um, God, God willing, she should be going off to Kingman. And if, if the offspring gets the best of both of them then that is an offspring to watch for the guineas in 2025 because that's two you know guineas runners up that arguably both should have been guineas guineas winners so there's going to be some sort of double angled family you know resolution going on with that one but it's all it's all gone smoothly so far um uh, you know, you obviously keep your fingers crossed at all stages of the process, and it's a bloody long process. And even when they're born, you still have to keep your fingers crossed it all goes well for another two or three years. So it's you know, pretty stressful, but um, yeah, it's all gone well. Um, uh, Ed Sackville, who we work with as well on bloodstock side, he he was in taking videos and doing assessments of all our yearlings and stuff and foals maybe four or five weeks ago and he sent me all these whatsapp videos and you know you go oh, that's a nice horse and that's a nice horse and that's all yeah that's a bit yeah, average and then this you know this other one you're like wow oh hold on that's lawrence yeah. um and you know even even six seven eight months pregnant um being walked around the indoor um indoor schooling ring you know she still stands out as you know she, she was still head and shoulders uh better looking and more graceful than than, than everything else so um yeah she's in great shape that's fantastic john you've been ridiculously generous with your time my very last question i promise if you could do your best to sum up what lauren's meant to you um i probably used the word in describing many of many of the um experiences we have with her but a dream She's just literally been a dream. Um, everything about her, um, you know, the places she's taken us, the experiences that we've had whilst at those places. And, you know, going back to the Guineas and, and you know, PJ and I were saying, you just the whole experience and being part of that massive event was just an incredible experience. And obviously her, her accomplishments, all of those little facets, are, 
you know, they're just a dream. It's unreal. And, you know, like I say, to have won three or four group ones and then talking about going for a, a classic the next day and you just think, horses don't do that sort of thing. And then she goes and does it. And then she goes and wins another, you know, wins another two, three group ones. And it's just unbelievable. An unbelievable filly and um, very honoured to have been part of her and, you know, put it all together. Just It's just a dream. Videos. Thanks a million, John. You've been incredible. Here's one. There we are now. Thank you very much to John Dance for being so generous with his time and telling us everything there is to know about his great mare. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, uh, then please do spread the good word. You know, scream it from the rooftops. The virtual rooftops. Like Twitter and all that. Um, any support at all is always very much appreciated and goes a long way. And if you like the series and you'd like to get me a pint to say thanks, the Kofi link at the top of the show notes will enable you to do just that. Or if, you know, you or someone you know might be interested in sponsoring the show and helping me to continue making them, you know, my Twitter DMs are open. That's all I'll say. And now the music commentary mashup. You are about to hear the commentary from three of Lawrence's Group 1 wins. So the pre-Diane, the big plan from day one, as well as the matron at Leopardstown and the sun chariot at Newmarket just after that. The accompanying song is called Twinkle by a criminally underrated Irish band called Whipping Boy. So I hope you enjoy it. And be sure to tune in next week when the episode will be about the brilliant Captain CB with the absolute gentleman that is Eddie Harty. Out on Wednesday next week, good luck. to fight back but can't and Lawrence has the lead here on the outside Shinaza Sutraxil miss you coming Omerik is there with a run they're lined up across them Apoli is going for the inside Lawrence has the lead Omerik and miss you down the outside Moses Amica it's Lawrence from Omerik and the run to the line Lawrence held on to win it close for second Moses Amica Omerik miss you and Apoli Centre is magical. Alpha Centauri on the outside is beginning to quicken up. And then comes Klimi. They're inside the final. 150 yards. And it's Lawrence on the far side. Lawrence for a big shock. Will win the matron. Second is Alpha Centauri. Lawrence for Danny Tutto and Callenberg all the way. Side the dip and towards the final furlong, and Lawrence now sends about a work under Danny Tudho. She leads by two lengths, two in second, the rallying happily. Out in order, back in third, and then came I can fly. Lawrence with happily rallying as they run towards the line. Lawrence from happily, here comes the winning line. It's Lawrence, her fifth group one win. She takes the sun chariot, seeing off happily, then out in order. I can fly.